This oh, yeah. is hell. Already then. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and we are broadcasting right now from our very own studios above a pool table in a bar, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. This week, economic sanctions are sold by governments to those who oppose war as a less devastating, less deadly alternative way to confront other nations. But as we've been telling you since the last century, when we were reporting on the catastrophic impact of sanctions on the people of Iraq, sanctions aren't as humanitarian as they're cracked up to be. And now the target of U.S. sanctions is... Iran. Today, we'll be talking to senior associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., Kevin Cashman, co-author of the Jacobin article, U.S. Sanctions Are Designed to Kill. U.S. Sanctions Are Killing Ordinary Iranians by the Thousands. Through its control over the world banking system, America's sanctioning power floods international human rights law and poses a threat to the world. Kevin wrote the story with his colleague, Kayvon Karazian, a researcher also at CEPR. You can find out more about the Center for Economic Pol- Economic and Policy Research by going to CEPR.net. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin M. Cashman. And you can find out more about Kevin at his website, Cashmank. Cashman K. I like Cashmank better. Cashmank.com. Then later this week, we'll have the return of political philosopher Jody Dean. Jody has a new book out called Comrade, an essay on political belonging. Past guests are praising Comrade. Liza Featherstone says she can't shut up about Comrade. Lynn Siegel, who you may remember being on our show to discuss radical happiness, says Jody Dean confronts the dystopic present to insist upon the necessity for building unifying solidarities across our proliferating political differences. And Robin D.G. Kelly insists, read comrade, be comrades. Jody's writing is essential for anyone seeking real transformative social change. Jody has been on This Is Hell twice in the past. She was on most recently to talk about her preface to the new Pluto Books edition of the Communist Manifesto titled The Manifesto of the Communist Party for Us, an idea whose time has come again. And back in 2016, Jody told us about her then-just-released work, Crowds and Party, How Do We Move from the Inert Mass to Organized Activists. Jody is professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. We'll also be having an interview later this week with sustainability scholar Amelia Moore, author of Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas. Amelia considers an experimental form of tourism developed in the name of sustainability, which is changing the way tourists and Bahamians know themselves and relate to their islands. Amelia's book was published in August before Hurricane Dorian made landfall, so it will be interesting to learn how that environmental destruction has had any impact on the concept of sustainable tourism. Amelia is assistant professor of sustainable coastal tourism and recreation in the Department of Marine Affairs at the University of Rhode Island. Of course, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, and I've got something to say, or I should say more to say about American exceptionalism and innocence, and that the only thing I find exceptional about the Americans is how they can dupe themselves into believing the United States doesn't have a history racked with guilt. So this week, it's deadly U.S. economic sanctions imposed on Iran. 
a discussion on how we can all get along as comrades, and the concept of sustainable tourism in an area that has recently been destroyed by a hurricane, and a moment of truth. And that sounds just about right for a show called This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's Hell. First, Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Are you near a microphone at all? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry if you can hear Dora in the background. My kid is sick and couldn't go to preschool today. Uh, that's sad. Also producing this week's show is Jonah Tomko-Smith. Jonah, what's new by you? Uh, applying to jobs, man. <laughs> there you go. Oh. Have, uh, have you handed your resume to uh, Alex yet and you filled out the application form here yet? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'll get the job. <laughs> I think you're pretty much a lock. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and I know one of you has this week's hangover cure. Uh, this week's hangover cure is weed. But not any weed. According to the article, types of marijuana known to ease a hangover posted last week at thefreshtoast.com, a Los Angeles-based bud tender, oh boy, <laughs> gave solid advice to someone, something called Mel Magazine. Oh, I like Mel Magazine. I know. And now he didn't know the feral cat outside our back door had a magazine either. I didn't know, had no idea that Mel had his own magazine. The bud tender, ooh, suggests for a hangover that you can't get out of bed from, I recommend a CBD-heavy strain called Harlequin. CBD has anti-inflammatory and anti-nausea properties that will help you feel slightly human again. For a less intense hangover, I'd go for an indica-dominant hybrid, strawberry banana, <laughs> which will help you with relaxing your body and working up an appetite. If you're hungover and need to get up and go somewhere, I suggest a sativa, green crack, because it helps you get up and moving. Thefreshtoast.com adds, Sour Tsunami, which is another high CBD brand, has been said to snuff out nausea like a champ. There's also Northern Lights, known for its ability to help with anxiety and pain. Some say Trainwreck is their go-to strain for combating headaches, and others like Jilly Bean for getting their energy back. That makes this week's hangover cure weed, but not any type of weed, just a whole bunch of different types of weed. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I hope that everybody got all of that. And don't forget, you will be able to hear uh, this show again at thisishell.com when we podcast it shortly after our broadcast. So if you missed any of those and want to take some very extensive notes so you know what kind of weed to smoke when trying to overcome a hangover, go back to thisishell.com and re-listen to this morning's Hangover Cure. You are listening to God's Favorite Show podcast live stream, radio show, it really doesn't matter. Where is favorite? Prove us wrong. Or is it her favorite? This is hell. American exceptionalism brands the U.S. as unique, as better than any nation before it, and any nation since. Our mission is to transform the world in our image, reproducing over and over again American democracy and all its freedoms especially its free market, which, oddly, often undermines those very same freedoms it supposedly guarantees. This exceptionalism, this arrogant, conceited, bloated national ego of we're better than everyone else-ism, is built upon the foundation of American innocence, an innocence that always asks the question, why do they hate us after an attack, usually in retaliation for some egregious, egregious policy the U.S. imposes overseas? A policy most Americans are unaware of, a policy that likely has had deadly implications on those it targets, like the sanctions the U.S. has placed upon Iran that we'll be discussing later today with Kevin Cashman. But what is it that makes the U.S. truly exceptional? How are we different 
Well, one way we are different is, unlike most of the rest of the world, people in the U.S. are not as freaked out about climate change as everybody else is. In fact, there are even people living here who don't think the climate, change, the climate is changing and the globe is warming, despite year after year of record high temperatures. They even rationalize this era of heat as a mere climatological cycle, despite the lack of any evidence that we can simply wait out the cycle and everything will be back to normal. Globally, according to a Pew Research study from earlier this year, 68% of people see climate change as a major threat, with only 9% believing global warming is not a threat at all. However, here in the States, in the same study, only 59% view climate change as a significant threat, with nearly twice as many, 16%, still steeped deep in denialism. Of the 26 nations surveyed, which included all of Europe as well as select nations in Africa, Micronesia, and South America, the United States ranked 20th when it came to concerns over global warming. And that's actually good news, as a study last year by the American Psychological Association revealed that current numbers of Americans believing in climate change has actually increased dramatically in the last few years. Not that we're all hearing that good news. A Yale University study in April found Americans on average estimate that only 54% of other Americans think global warming is happening, when in fact 69% of Americans do. So... For some reason, we think we're a lot more anti-climate change than we actually are. Now, the U.S. is exceptional in that we're in far more climate change denial than most of the rest of the world. Okay, sure, Russians and Israelis are in deeper denial about global warming than people in the United States are. Hell, Israel's the only nation where more people view climate change as a minor threat, not a major one, and some climatologists estimate Israel to be completely underwater in a century or two. Our American innocence insists we cannot be the cause of climate change. How can we? We didn't mean any harm. All we were trying to do was make the world better by making everyone have all the latest, most uh, modern conveniences, thus creating more work for everyone globally in our expanding and not invading free market and rising all boats. We want to do what's best for everyone, and seeing as how we are the best, that means making everyone into us. Sure, they may resist the idea at first, but over time and through espionage, manipulation of election outcomes, and even violence, they'll come around to realizing the wonders of free market democracy, which definitely puts the market before democracy. American exceptionalism and innocence are really denialism and de delusion leading to violent decision-making, to defend a fantasy and defend ourselves against making the humiliating admission that we've been duped into thinking we're better than everyone else. And any animosity toward us is undeserved. But how can a nation be exceptional when, from its beginning, from its very conception, it was a slave state? How can a nation be innocent when they choose capitalism as their political economic system, a system that is dependent upon even required slavery in order to succeed. Capitalism, the driving force behind the American dream to be better off than your parents were, to scratch and claw your family from rags to riches, that acquisitive fantasy of being better off, the American dream never imagines those who experience it as a nightmare, those who must go poor for others to go rich, those who must die in order for others to live in wealth and luxury, those whose lands must be destroyed by climate change so we can keep our vaunted car culture chugging along. 
Yes, we definitely are exceptional as Americans. We have the exceptional skill to stay in denialism about our impact on the planet and its people. We are innocent in that we've happily brainwashed ourselves into believing we've never done anything wrong, despite being born in a world of slavery and genocide, and being the only nation to ever use an atomic weapon of mass destruction against another. And we did it twice. And that's while peace talks with the Japanese were actually making progress to avoid any potential invasion. No, America, you are not exceptional or innocent. You're actually arrogant and delusional. And at some point, everyone's going to suddenly realize we've all fallen for a big con. Maybe that's when we'll finally, finally, finally realize this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show are Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. Follow us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can email us at any time at chuck at thisishell.com or again, you can direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio or send us a message on Facebook at facebook.com slash this is Hell Radio. Uh, you got uh, our guest on the line? Uh, yes, we do. All right. <laughs> Noam Chomsky called This is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is Hell. I just lost all my notes. I just lost all my notes. Look at that. <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> Economic sanctions are destructive to a nation's infrastructure and deadly to its people. They keep needed food and medicine from women and children who are forced into lives of desperation. Here to help us understand how devastating life under economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. can be... Senior Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., Kevin Cashman is co-author of the Jacobin article, U.S. Sanctions Are Designed to Kill. Welcome to This Is Hell, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The subtitle for that article is Through Its Control. I'm sorry. Uh, U.S. sanctions are killing ordinary um, Iranians by the thousands through its control over the world banking system. America's sanctioning power flouts international human rights law and poses a threat to the world. Kevin wrote the story with his colleague, Kavan Karazian, a researcher also at CEPR. You can find out more about Center for Economic and Policy Research at CEPR.net. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin M. Cashman, and you can find more about Kevin at his website, CashmanK.com. You uh, begin by writing that Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif, he recently visited the Group of Seven at the invitation of French President Emmanuel Macron and what was seen as an overture to the Trump administration to negotiate over sanctions that have plagued the Iranian economy. Back in 2018, after months of increasingly hostile rhetoric, the U.S. government withdrew from the joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or Iran deal, and imposed a maximum pressure campaign that included unilateral economy-wide sanctions. The Iran deal was an agreement that provided Iran relief from existing sanctions in exchange for limits for its enrichment of uranium, among other concessions. These sanctions hampered trade between the European Union, whose leaders have sought to salvage the Iran deal. Have those sanctions had any impact on U.S. trade? If the, if the European Union is in any way harmed by sanctions affecting trade, 
How much does trade determine the U.S. position on Iran? Oh, that's a good question. Um, obviously, Iran is a supplier of oil to a lot of places. Uh, its uh, location closer to Europe means that its oil is more attractive for their purchase. But, um, uh, you know, the, the price of oil uh, probably is affected by the U.S. deciding not to, to buy uh, Iran's oil or any of its other exports. Um, but admittedly, the uh, exports from Iran to the U.S. are probably less important than they are to uh, other places around the world. Why are they more important to places like Europe? Why is the European Union suffering more than, say, the United States is because of a lack of Iranian exports to the EU? Uh, the, the European Union um, has enthusiastically embraced the Iran deal because uh, they wanted to buy Iran's oil, and uh, they thought it was a deal that uh, you know balanced their uh, geopolitical uh, objectives and uh, their desire to have trade with Iran. Um, so that when Trump unilaterally withdrew from the Iran deal, uh, European leaders like Macron uh, wanted to come up with some other way that they could, uh, you know, exchange uh, goods for oil or uh, basically import Iranian oil. You write additional U.S. sanctions imposed since then have specifically targeted a thousand individuals and entities with the goal of reducing Iran's oil reserves to zero. What impact would that have on the Iranian people? And what impact would it have on their leadership? The, the sanctions are supposed to be targeting their leaders. So who really uh, faces the most impact from these kind of sanctions, the people or their leaders? I think that really gets at the, the crux of it. The, the United States wants to say that they're targeting these sanctions on leaders that are corrupt, you know, involved in illegal activity, involved in terrorism, involved in all sorts of stuff. Um, but the purpose of sanctions is to cause, you know, widespread economic unrest. And that unrest is supposed to put pressure on those leaders. When the people of Iran lose confidence in their leaders, it causes, uh, or it could cause um, some kind of regime change. And that's what uh, seems to be the goal of the United States. But they have to have this dual rhetoric. They talk on the one hand about punishing individuals that they can say are doing this illegal activity that are immoral, that are, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. Um, but the reality is the sanctions have to affect ordinary people in order for them to work. It's just how they're designed. Um, so they, they try to brush that away and say they aren't affecting ordinary people, um, but that is explicitly the goal of them. And uh, Iran has sort of designed its economy to cope with sanctions as much as it can, but it still causes shortages of food and medicine and, and certainly uh, affects uh, a wide swath of the people um, and probably affects the least off the most. Um, so there are big effects happening to the Iranian people from these policies. 
So when the United States ever says, or any country ever says that we are imposing these economic sanctions upon your uh, country, but we are not against the people, let's say in this instance, the people of Iran were against your leadership, yet the sanctions that they are employing are not targeting the leadership as much as they're targeting the uh, people, because that's their intended, intended goal, is to motivate the people to rise up and cause regime change, because they are being punished for the policies of their leadership. Leadership. How well do economic sanctions work? How good of a history do they have in uh, motivating the people to rise up and overthrow regimes that the United States does not support? Well, I should also say that the you know the other goal is that uh, it could cause some sort of shift in Iranian policy that the U.S. wants. But of course, you know, there's a lot of incentives to stop. Uh, the Iranian leadership from from doing that to acquiescing to American goals. So you're right, mostly the effect is to cause some sort of pressure on them to change the government. Um, uh, but it doesn't, it, sanctions are, um, and I talk about this in the piece, is that uh, the United States has a very specific uh, power that other countries don't have to cause this kind of widespread economic damage. Um, and there are sanctions on a lot of countries. Uh, the U.S. Um, targets individuals and the economy, as in the case of Iran, and they don't seem to achieve geopolitical objectives um, most of the time. And um, they also cause this, you know, these humanitarian crises. So, um, at least in, from what I've seen, they're not they're not effective at achieving their goals. You write that more recently Trump said that although Iran's economy is crashing, it's very easy to straighten it out, or it's very easy for us to make it a lot worse. So I assume that Iran's economy is crashing because these economic sanctions have had a huge effect on their economy, and I know I shouldn't be making that assumption, but I guess so. Is Iran's economy crashing, and how easy would it be to straighten out their economy? Is it as easy as a flip of a switch and ending the sanctions, and all of a sudden Iran is just as fine and dandy as they were before? Uh, I think that um, it, it 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 in the U.S.'s the U.S.'s role is as easy as as flipping a switch. They could change their policies if they wanted to. Um, Iran's economy would still suffer, but if it immediately had the ability to. Uh, uh, export oil and export other things and import what it needed, um, it would cause a lot of the pain to go away. Um, uh, but right now, the IMF is uh, projecting that the economy is, in Iran is going to contract about uh, 10% this year, which is uh, a huge contraction, uh, especially just over one year. Um, so it is causing a lot of damage. Uh, the the other side of that is that Iran is used to having these kinds of sanctions um, uh, inflicted on it, and uh, it has adapted in certain ways, and it can mitigate some of the effects of that uh, of those sanctions. Uh, it's still able to export some oil, especially to places like China, which are uh, uh, more insulated from U.S. pressure. Um, and there are other strategies that it uses to sort of avoid uh, the effects of sanctions. Um, but that's not to say that the effects aren't still uh, affecting its, its economy uh, to a large degree. And a big part of your writing is about the way in which the United States flexes that power over Iran when it comes to, and the world, when it comes to their financial instruments. And I want to get to that in a little bit. But first, is Iran... 
are they being intransigent or uncooperative, even uncompromising or unwilling to make any concessions? Are, are they, how much of a, because I know that when negotiations fall down, when there are these kind of confrontations, it's always a two-way street. It's always both people are contributing somehow to the problem without just focusing on the problems of the Trump administration backing out of the Iran deal. To what degree is Iran causing any uh, problem when it comes to making uh, any negotiations, any diplomatic concessions? Is any of this uh, Iran's negotiating fault? Um, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, as well versed in that as I probably should be, but it, it, it seems to me that uh, Iran is, is a sovereign country that uh, other countries around the world um, recognize, and it has the, uh, the right to pursue certain policies. Um, in the UN, you know, other countries have decided that they're very concerned about Iran's ability to enrich uranium. Um, which Iran usually claims is for, uh, you know, civilian purposes, you know, power plants, that sort of thing. Um, and so the Iran deal was seen by, you know, a, a large segment of the international community as a good compromise. And uh, it allowed Iran to start exporting oil again. It re relieved uh, it of sanctions. Um, and it was something that uh, um, the U.S. was involved in, Europe was involved in, um, so the idea that uh, Iran is being intransigent right now is is not really something that you can you can uh, have a lot of evidence behind because they really are just looking to go back to this Iran deal, um, which of course Trump withdrew from because he said it was you know this not not a good deal and that he was uh, uh, upset about the concessions that the Iranians got. According to you write that according to Trump himself, the United States has the power to solve or exacerbate uh, Iran's current economic problems. What is left unsaid, including by much of the media, is that sanctions that crash the economy are an attack on the country's civilian population and create widespread human misery. Even when you say that the economy is going to contract 10%, while economists and people like yourself may realize that that is a huge contraction of the economy, in somebody who's not as economically trained, uh, they might think of the number 10% as not that bad. They might think of the sanctions as far better than the United States having uh, soldiers invading that country. So why, in your opinion, is that not said, that thing about how uh, sanctions create widespread human misery? Is it assumed the audience knows that sanctions like war cause civilian misery? Or are we trying, is an attempt to obfuscate the amount of misery that the United States is supporting through sanctions? Uh, I think that, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding. And this is part of why we wrote the piece about how sanctions work. Um, and uh, a lot of people hear, okay, the U.S. put sanctions on Iran. That must mean that the, you know, the United States can't trade with Iran anymore. So, you know, that's the United States is right, and that's uh, something it could do. It's the same way any country could sort of uh, decide to stop trading with another country. Um, but the reality is that when the United States decides not to trade with Iran and decides to use its uh, control of the, the financial system uh, to enforce that um, and pressure other countries, it means that no one can easily trade with Iran. Um, and that's, I think, the key point 
Um, and uh, that point is often left unsaid in uh, uh, pieces that discuss this, discuss the sanctions. Um, so those pieces need to talk about the humanitarian impact and, you know, not being able to get cancer drugs and people dying from that, not being able to get medical equipment or medicine or, or food, um, and put it in that context that this is because of United States policies. Um, and it's not, you know, this, this sort of like, uh, abstract, um, economic, uh, you know, routine economic policy that any country could have. We are speaking with senior associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., Kevin Cashman. He is co-author of the Jacobin article, U.S. Sanctions Are Designed to Kill. Kevin wrote the story with his colleague, Kavan Karazian, a researcher also at CEPR. You can find out more about the center at CEPR.net. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin M. Cashman, and you can find all of his work at his website, CashmanK.com. You were mentioning cancer sufferers. You write, indeed, sanctions appear to be contributing to widespread shortages of medicine and medical equipment, particularly affecting cancer patients. Are cancer sufferers in particular targets of U.S. sanctions? Why are they seen as such a threat? Why are cancer patients the patients who suffer in particular under these sanctions? Well, it's it's about uh, the Iranians, uh, the Iranian economy's ability to, to provide these goods. Um, as as goods get more specialized with specialized medical equipment, with you know very expand, expensive cancer drugs, um, you know those drugs are not available in Iran unless it imports them from somewhere. So you know they certainly have supplies. Uh, those supplies run out under these sanctions, and then they need to come up with ways to import these needed drugs. And now uh, the United States and a lot of administration officials point out that there are exemptions for uh, food and medicine in these sanctions. And they're correct. Those exemptions exist. The problem is they're almost impossible to use. Uh, so Iran has a very hard time uh, just importing that kind of specialized medicine. Uh, and um, it's also the reason why countries like Cuba, which have also been the, the target of sanctions, develop their own medicine and have sort of a, a bigger medical industry than uh, other countries their size would have. It's so that they can produce this medicine themselves instead of relying on imports, which might, you know, be under uh, some kind of sanctions regime, regime at some point in the future. On these food and medicine exemptions, you write on top of all these issues, even if food and medicine were in reality exempt from the sanctions regime, the crippling effect on Iran's economy would impact the Iranians' financial ability to acquire food and medicine anyway. Iran would have fewer resources to devote to domestic food and medicine production and many fewer resources to import the same products. So exemptions are not. Food medicine access is always crippled by sanctions. So if that's the case, should we dismiss then any humanitarian claims by the U.S. when they say food and medicine will be exempt, when they say that uh, economic sanctions are more humanitarian or even using the word humanitarian when it is linked to uh, economic sanctions because they say it's more humanitarian relative to war? Well, I, you know, I, I would ask them when they've been used. You know, show show examples of how these exemptions have been been uh, used in Iran to to import these kind of products. Um, 
And that's the thing that they can't really show because they are people do try to use them. Um, but like you said, you know, if you allowed food and medicine in, but still otherwise destroyed the economy, you know, that's still going to hurt people. Um, and I, I don't think there's this sort of either it's sanctions or war. There's not there. There are other choices that the U.S. can and other uh, people in the international community can pursue. Um, so those, you know, those arguments don't really hold water with me. Do you think then that sanctions as a strategy kind of erases any other possible way of, of uh, approaching or taking care of or uh, dealing with a confrontation? Because that's what we're given as the choice right now. It's always the military or economic sanctions. Do you think the fact that economic sanctions exists erases the alternative of negotiation or undermines the possibility of diplomacy? Uh, I think that is is true because the U.S. can uh, engage in these really destructive sanctions unilaterally. It does sort of uh, give them the incentive to uh, not really pursue diplomacy in a real way. If if sanctions had to be approved by the U.N. Security Council, which which does happen, um, you know, it's a long process, but it, it causes, you know, you have to come to the table and convince other people and other countries in the world to support these policies. And maybe at that point you can come up with, uh, you know, some type of sanction that would be, uh, you know, um, something that uh, China and Russia would agree to. Um, but it, it's certainly, a, a, you know, a process that would require diplomacy at, at various levels. Why didn't the U.S. public learn from the devastating sanctions against Iraq in the 1990s and all the way up to 2003? You know, half a million uh, supposedly uh, reports of as many as half a million women and children dying from lack of medicine and lack of food. We spoke with Kathy Kelly in Voice in the Wilderness back in the 90s throughout that sanctions regime and how they were purposely illegally going into Iran or Iran, Iraq and bringing toys for children and medicine for kids, and they were openly and publicly doing this, trying to get attention to how horrible sanctions were. We all learned how horrible sanctions were, and then here we are still continuing to pursue sanctions. So why is it that the public seems to give carte blanche to the government to employ sanctions when we know, or at least we should know, their devastating impact and effects that they've had in the past? Right. And, and, you know, there's that famous uh, Madeleine Albright quote where she somebody asks her, you know, 500,000 children, Iraqi children are dead because of sanctions. Is it worth it? And uh, she said, yeah, she thought it was worth it. And, um, you know, that number, I think, has been disputed and maybe it's a bit lower. Um, but that sort of sums up U.S. policy. The U.S. is willing to... Uh, basically impoverish and kill people in other countries um, if it, uh, you know, is politically something that uh, um, is beneficial to them or thinks they think it might achieve their goals. Uh, and I think really the media is uh, needs to report on this in a better way. And that was another point of uh, writing this article is that, you know, you need to accurately describe this unique power that the United States has and, and how it's uh, materially affecting um, uh, people in these other countries. Uh, and, you know, I'm not even sure there's that much support for sanctions. I haven't looked at uh, polling recently. Um, but, 
definitely explaining what's happening in a better way, uh, you know, talking as if Iran was filled with, with people and not, you know, it wasn't filled with enemies. You know, the Iranian people are not the enemies of the American people. Um, and uh, I think the American people understand that at some level, and um, we definitely need more reporting uh, to humanize people in Iran. You hear the kind of dismissiveness and derision that many in, here in the U.S. media have towards Cuba, and there are many economic problems that they face. You also hear the same kind of derision towards Venezuela and the economic problems that they face. That We blame the Cuban government. We blame the Venezuelan government for their problems. Why does the media, why do we in general, why do we so ignore the impact of uh, sanctions, economic sanctions on uh, other countries? Why do we just want to think that Cuba must have a corrupt government and ignore the uh, impact of U.S. sanctions on Cuba? Why do we uh, want to suspect that or, you know, report that Maduro is uh, corrupt without pointing out the devastating effects of uh, economic sanctions on Venezuela? Why do we constantly, why does the United States constantly ignore the impact of sanctions the US is very good at talking about it um, in the article we talk about uh, something that uh, Brian Hook said and he's a special representative um, on Iran at the State Department and um, yeah they put out uh, reports and uh, other like publications uh, talking about you know these are targeted sanctions against these corrupt people uh, there are food and medical exemptions, you know, uh, the Iranian government is intransient. And um, I think a lot of people believe that or, you know, are sort of indifferent to the problem because, uh, you know, they're hearing stuff from both sides and they just, you know, want to stay out of it. Um, but certainly describing how U.S. sanctions are affecting uh, the most vulnerable in those countries is, is a powerful way to get the point across that these are uh, these are killing people. You write that in Venezuela, which is under a similar U.S. sanctioned regime as Iran, there have been similar effects with more than 40,000 people estimated to have died from 2017 to 2018 due to the collective punishment inflicted on them. That study was done by your organization, the Center for Economic Policy and Research, a group we've featured on our show for over 20 years, and it's co-authored by two past guests on our show, the economist Jeffrey Sachs and CEPR co-director Mark Weisbrot. That report states the sanctions are depriving Venezuela of life-saving medicines, medical equipment, food, and other essential imports. This is illegal under U.S. and international law and treaties that the U.S. has signed. Congress should move to stop it. If it is illegal under U.S. and international law, what explains why it continues? Why is this not being challenged in the courts? Well, I think that the part of that is that there need to be uh, those exemptions we were talking about for food and medicine, um, and because those technically and exist and are nominally used, uh, they're able to get around that requirement. Um, uh, but like I said, that's you know, those effectively don't do anything to alleviate the need for food or medicine. Uh, and then international right, human rights law and international law are very hard to uh, um, get rulings under. Um, and, uh, you know, there was one in case in uh, uh, Iran where I think the ruling said that the U.S. had to make sure that these exemptions were actually working. And instead of 
complying with that ruling, the U.S. just withdrew from that treaty. Um, so if the U.S. can withdraw from treaties because it doesn't want to comply with them, um, there's not really much that, you know, the international community uh, can do to enforce it. You write that statements from U.S. administration officials often contend that sanctions have negligible economic or social effects on the general population of Iran. For example, the U.S. State Department's special representative for Iran, Brian Hook, who you were mentioning earlier, recently denied the U.S. sanctions on Iran affect the availability of medicine and agricultural pro- uh, products. In his argument, Hook divorces the connection between the economic dam- damage caused by sanctions in Iran and the lack of basic necessities like medicine and food preferring to instead lay blame on the Iranian government, not on what the Trump administration calls targeted sanctions. So U.S. State Department Special Representative for Iran, Brian Hook, wants to blame any problems Iran has experienced on Iran. Meanwhile, you have President Trump wanting to take credit for any problems the Iranian economy may be experiencing. So which is more accurate? Whose analysis more reflects reality and is closer to the truth? Either Trump's, we should take credit for this, or Brian Hook saying we have nothing to do with this. Well, I think that's, you know, it, it, it shows that uh, uh, Trump sometimes says the, uh, the soft part loud in that um, uh, he is he's more accurately describing the situation. I'm sure the State Department doesn't appreciate him saying that, um, but he's right. The, the United States' ability to inflict harm on Iran is what supposedly will cause uh, the U.S. to have its political objectives reached. Uh, Hook is saying, you know, the standard line that uh, these are bad people doing bad things and we're just targeting them. And uh, the Iranian people are we're friends with the Iranian people and they can get food and medicine all they want. So he's saying the standard State Department line on sanctions. Uh, Trump is more accurately uh, describing the situation. You write the main mechanism. I want to. This is the part that I want to stress the most from your writing because this is the most fascinating part to me. And I was leaving at the end as the big punchline. So uh, because this is a, a really interesting part of the story, and you were mentioning this earlier, that the, only the United States has the ability. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like only the United States has the unilateral ability to impose these kind of economic sanctions on anyone in the world. That it's almost like we're the only one with the nuclear option. We're the only one with the weapon of mass destruction. Am I accurate in saying that only the United States can do this unilaterally? Absolutely. The It's the only uh, sovereign country that can do that. Other international bodies can, can do uh, similar uh, actions, but no other country could could do what the United States is doing. So you write the main mechanism by which oil production has fallen is the same mechanism that prevents Iran from importing food and medicine. Iran cannot find buyers for its oil on the open market, just like it cannot buy food or medicine on the open market. In effect, it is cut off from the U.S.-dominated international financial system. The U.S.-dominated international financial system. How much does the U.S. hold the world hostage and impose its will on other countries through the U.S.-dominated international financial system? How much do we control the world through that system? Uh, it's it's a significant amount, and um, there are there are these these technologies that basically allow uh, money to flow from country to country. Um, and because uh, a lot of transactions um, are in dollars and uh, go through U.S. banks, um, 
the United States, when it has what we call like primary sanctions, uh, can prohibit U.S. banks from doing any business with a country. Uh, so that means that if any transaction with Iran goes through a U.S. bank, the U.S. bank can stop it or uh, basically punish that U.S. bank. Um, but what it also can do is it can say, okay, well, there are these banks in, in the European Union that uh, use these payment systems that we have a lot of sway over. And they can send them a message and say, hey, we don't want you doing business with Iran either. And if you do, we might punish you. Um, and now that's not uh, something that is its official uh, um, that's not a channel that's official, but unofficially they're pressuring banks and countries not to do business with Iran. And if those banks were sanctioned by the U.S., a lot of their ability to uh, do business would erode overnight. So these banks are basically terrified of being sanctioned by the United States. So you have a situation where banks in, say, Belgium want to have a transaction with an Iranian bank that's sanctioned by the U.S., uh, and even if that money wouldn't flow through the United States, that bank is going to think twice before doing that transaction because it knows the U.S. is, is looking at it. Um, and then you get to another type of sanctions, which are also on Iran now, which are secondary sanctions. So primary sanctions say that the U.S. can't do business with Iran and U.S. institutions can't do business with Iran. Um, but unofficially, that's sort of expanded to other places. Now, section, se secondary sanctions, excuse me, basically make that official. They say that anybody who does business with Iran is cut off from the United States financial system. So this is an extraordinary threat to any bank. There's, there are very few banks that have no business with the United States uh, that would be able to... Uh, or want to do transactions with Iran under these sanctions. So um, do, uh, do uh, U.S. economic sanctions then, do they reveal, or should they reveal not only to Americans, but the rest of the world, that the U.S. controls the world through banking, that the U.S. banks control the world? Uh, I think that that is something that needs to be discussed more because, you know, it's it's sort of a system that has existed for a while. And a lot of people, including, you know, the European Union, know that it doesn't work and that uh, the U.S. government um, is able to influence all types of actors in, in the system uniquely. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's something that uh, should reveal, you know, the presence of the United States. And you write on top of all of these type of sanctions that are going on, despite not being located in the United States, this uh, process called SWIFT, where uh, you transfer monies through, uh, you transfer monies internationally. SWIFT makes all of the system's data available to the U.S. government, even if those transactions do not involve the United States. The other system, the CHIP system, which provides communication as well as settlement functions, is governed by U.S. law, has many U.S. banks as owners, and is directly overseen by U.S. authorities. These systems rely on a network of correspondent banks, which link banks that might not have direct relationships with one another to complete transactions. The apex of the correspondent system is the New York Federal Reserve Bank under the control of U.S. banking authorities, which also serves as a lender of last resort to other central banks. To what extent does this put other nations at a disadvantage when advancing whatever their policy goals are? Does U.S. control of the international financial system force other nations to do what the U.S 
U.S. demands, how effective is U.S. control over the world through international financial systems? It's very effective, and, and you can see uh, Macron in, in France is uh, uh, trying to come up with some way to salvage the Iran deal and, and you know, mend ties between the U.S. and Iran because France has an invested interest in, in, in correcting the situation because they very much want to be able to import Iranian oil. Um, you know, and this is, this is a, a, something that affects all countries. Uh, you know, that being said, uh, the rise of China and sort of the, the diminishing power of the United States abroad means that uh, China is increasingly becoming a, a player in this. And uh, there are a lot of Chinese banks that don't have ties with the United States, so they're able to conduct these transactions. Um, the China is also willing to buy oil from Iran and Venezuela because it's much more insulated from the U.S. Uh, retribution. Um, it doesn't mean it doesn't make it hard or difficult. It's much more difficult. Um, but uh, China is showing that there is still a way to do business with these countries. Does this control by the U.S., or could it even potentially lead to members of the international community to not want to do business with the U.S., or at least not be as dependent upon the U.S. as the U.S. will use that relationship to dominate other nations' foreign policy? In, in a sense, is might this be a short, a bad, or a good short-term policy for the United States to attain power, but a bad long-term policy because it might just piss off everybody else? I think that's true. I, I think we're seeing uh, people start to talk about alternatives outside of the U.S. control. Um, the EU is trialing a new system, a new, like SWIFT, that would be specifically to trade with Iran outside of U.S. control uh, for oil. Um, right now, it's just dealing with humanitarian trade, and, and I'm not even sure it's actually up and running officially. Um, but, you know, U.S. control is, is spurring these, these sort of uh, uh, new systems that um, are challenging uh, the way the U.S. controls the financial system. Um, and INSTEC, which is the, the, the system I was mentioning uh, in the European Union to trade with Iran, is one example, but also people are talking about, um, you know, is this the way the United the international financial system should be set up at all? Um, you know, are there ways that we can design it so it's fair? Uh, relying on the dollar and, and U.S. banks is is something that you know European countries, especially which have power in the financial system, are starting to realize is is something that they want to reevaluate. Kevin, it's, I'm really enjoying our conversation so far. We're speaking with Kevin Cashman. He works over the Center for Economic Policy and Research. You can find out more about that organization by going to CEPR.net. You write that in the meantime, because you were mentioning this INSTEX uh, and the potential that that might have for undermining the power of economic sanctions uh, internationally. You write that in the meantime, Iran is able to sell some oil uh, to countries such as China, Russia, and India, as you were mentioning earlier, either to pay back debt or become because some banks in these countries do not have significant business that can be impacted by U.S. retaliation. It also has had some success in covertly transferring oil to buyers, but this does not always escape U.S. control. 
So you mentioned Instex. You know, I, I heard about the uh, BRICS situation. I thought that was going to eliminate the amount of influence the United States has internationally over the financial system. Wasn't the whole BRICS system, the Association of the Emerging Economies of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, created to undermine U.S. financial and banking power over the world? And, and if so, where is that going? Is that still proceeding? Uh, I think that was, um, I might be wrong, but more about geopolitical uh, issues generally um, challenging the G7 and, and formerly the G8 and, uh, you know, sort of like uh, the non-aligned movement um, way back when in coming up with an alternative international order um, that puts these countries' interests ahead of U.S. interests. Um, and, and, you know, uh, some of those countries are, are helping Iran right now by still doing business with them. Um, so I think that is achieving, or those countries are still have those interests, um, are still pursuing those interests. You write that uh, Trump's comments are more revealing. Sanctions only work because they cause suffering in the first place. In effect, the United States is risking and sometimes ending the lives of thousands of Iranians with the hope that the Iranian government acquiesces to its demands or is replaced by a more compliant government. That the United States could carry out such a strategy in the first place should raise serious questions among concerned U.S. citizens and within the international community, especially among those who respect international law. What does it reveal to you about the United States when it believes it is above international law while imposing that same sanction, that, that same law upon others, even as a justification for war? What does it say to you about the United States when they seem to have a complete lack of respect for international law? Uh, to me, this is a con continuation of, uh, you know, longstanding U.S. policies uh, and um, sort of uh, arrogance. It's... Uh, you know, not willing to pursue diplomacy to solve problems because, uh, you know, simply they don't want to or because they want to uh, punish countries instead of engaging with them as equals. Um, so uh, certainly international law is something that uh, hopefully, uh, you know, the United States government and future administrations will take more seriously. Um, and hopefully those administrations will also be willing to reevaluate the uh, international financial system and, and how it's designed. So are sanctions at all becoming a topic of discussion in the Democratic presidential nominee debates? Uh, because uh, I know that uh, Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren, said that she would be against the sanctions. She would uh, end the sanctions against Venezuela. Has there been much, much discussion? Has the media tried to have more of a discussion about uh, sanctions? Uh, I believe Senator Sanders has also indicated that uh, he would um, review the sanctions currently in place and uh, probably end them. Um, but I haven't heard much from the other candidates. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's that big of a uh, topic among 2020 candidates uh, yet. But certainly because of the, the humanitarian impact abroad, uh, it definitely should be. Is the U.S. still the only, the sole superpower in the world because the U.S. controls the international financial institutions that allows the U.S. to, unlike any other country in the world, commit unilateral economic san sanctions that are devastating? Is the U.S., when it comes to finances, when it comes to the financial world, are we still the only global superpower? 
I think that the U.S. still is in an extremely privileged position because of that history. Um, it has a lot of benefits of the dollar being the reserve currency of the world. It has this ability to use the financial system in these ways. But uh, other countries, mostly China, um, have uh, also been uh, uh, becoming bigger players on the international scene. And China is a country that can help countries like Iran and, and Venezuela export um, their their commodities um, and it's big enough where the U.S. Is, is usually not going to cause any sort of confrontation and that's solely because China has, you know, the biggest economy in the world and, uh, you know, a rising international uh, uh, power. But the United States has unique power when it comes to finances in that we can impose economic sanctions unilaterally against any country in the world, correct? That's still correct, yeah. One last question for you, and as always for all of our guests, Kevin, it is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. The Trump administration keeps teetering on, if not war with Iran, at least military strikes. Sanctions against Iran may be devastating, but they are better than war, right? Aren't we, shouldn't we be happy the fact that we are only imposing economic sanctions on Iran and not going to war? Isn't, aren't uh, economic sanctions a, a fine alternative to war? Well, a lot of people consider sanctions acts of war, and uh, it makes a lot of sense because you're, you know, you're doing something to cripple an economy um, you know, unilaterally in this case. Uh, so, um, I mean, if you had to make me say it, it's probably better than invading Iran and, and destroying the country using, uh, you know, weapons. But uh, like I said before on the earlier segment, uh, this isn't this or that. There's diplomacy is, is the, the first thing that should be pursued. And uh, Trump is playing, you know, the sort of games he usually plays. And uh especially when Bolton was his national security advisor. Uh, they weren't making any serious uh, uh, overtures in the, on the diplomatic front. So diplomacy is really the, the thing that, that should be pursued. But if any other country was had the ability to employ unilateral economic sanctions, if any other country tried to put a trade blockade on the United States, we would view that as an act of war. Why do you think Americans don't view economic sanctions as an act of war? Uh, part of the reason for writing this piece, I, I think I mentioned this before too, is that um, we need to get this, these ideas out there and explain how these sanctions work and explain how they're, they're different to the American people and how this power is something that you know, literally ends lives abroad. Um, and so, uh, you know, if it, if it were the reverse situation, like you said, this would be an intolerable situation for the American people and, and they should understand that uh, these policies need to be changed because we're making intolerable situations for people abroad. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show, and thanks to Dan Beaton over at CEPR.net for pointing out your writing at Jacobin. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm looking forward to having you back on the show in the future. Thanks so much for having me. You are listening to This Is Hell. You can find us online at thisishell.com. 
You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can follow us on Twitter at this is hell radio. Same place on Instagram again at this is hell radio. Email me chuck at this is hell.com. And if we like your email, like what you have to say, send us your guest suggestions or any kind of constructive criticism for the show. We will read your comments on air. What do you think, Alex? Are we going to be able to reestablish or not? What's the deal? I need to have some information for you guys. Somebody's got to say something to me. (laughs) All right. I guess I'm just going to end the show because these people aren't talking to me anymore. All right. Are you ready for the outro? Okay, because I can't hear you at all over here. Where the coolest musicians get their news, this is hell. This is Hell is brought to you by the amazingly wonderful people who subscribe to This is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. And you too can become an amazingly wonderful subscriber to This is Hell by signing up at patreon.com slash this is hell. In doing so, every week you will receive an additional podcast of This is Hell exclusively for Patreon subscribers. That podcast and live stream includes a new monologue by me, a classic interview pulled from our 23-year archive of shows and behind-the-scenes information. This is Hell Insider stuff about the show that we do not share anywhere else. So if you want even more hell every week, a classic interview pulled from our archives that is not available online anywhere else. And to know exactly what's going on with the show, subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And all those Patreon subscribers, all of their support, plus all of the people who supported the show by going to thisishell.com and clicked on support, that's how we built these still, as you can tell, incomplete studios. We're still having some issues with the phone lines up here, some issues with the streaming capability. So we still need your continued support and if you do subscribe to Patreon, to This Is Hell on Patreon you get all our This Is Hell merchandise for $5 less than non-subscribers. See all our swag, our trucker hats, t-shirts campfire coffee mugs, reusable shopping bags as well as our flash drive containing 25 interviews that's called the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century. Join us for This Is Hell Office Hours this Wednesday and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Avon. The bar downstairs from this here studio. This is Hell Office Hours as our weekly meet and greet, which is more a think and drink. Hang out with us every Wednesday evening, immediately follow, following our live Wednesday evening podcast and stream. Thanks to everyone who shared this past Saturday's This Is Hell, where we talked about the plastic recycling con with the Intercept's Sharon Lerner, figured out the real reasons for protest violence with sociologist Ann Nassauer. And no, it's not because cops are pricks and protesters or troublemakers. We also discussed the U.S. far right's anti-constitutionalism with legal scholar Jack Jackson, as well as the left's poor reaction to reactionary attacks on justice and civil rights. Jeff Dorchin also did a moment of truth, and he questioned the need for heroes. You can listen to that entire show right now at thisishell.com. Thanks for sharing. Goes to Jeffrey, Julie, Marco, Gorilla Gramophonics, and a ton of you who shared the show anonymously. We really appreciate any way that you share our show. Coming up on this week's show, political philosopher 
Jody Dean returns to This Is Hell to talk about her new book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging. Sustainability scholar Amelia Moore will be on to discuss her new book, Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas. And as always, Jeff Dorchin will have a moment of truth. Hear it all at thisishell.com. We'll be back streaming live Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago Central Standard Time when we will not only be interviewing Jody Dean, but we'll be giving away her book, Comrade, as the prize for the question from hell, which we will be announcing on Wednesday morning. Then we'll be back for one more hour of hell Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. when we'll talk to Amelia Moore about her book, Destination Anthropocene, and Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. I also want to thank Kevin Cashman, who was our guest this morning. Thanks to Pete Valavanis, the proprietor of Carrie's Lounge, for supporting This Is Hell over all these years. And uh, this week's hangover cure is weed, but not any weed, just the kinds of weed that are suggested in the article at thefreshtoast.com, types of marijuana known to ease a hangover. Whistling by the graveyard since 1996, This Is Hell. Talk to you Wednesday when our guests are going to be Jody Dean, Amelia Moore, and we'll get some truth from Jeff. Stay beautiful, everybody. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.